right, guys, we're going to continue our Advent series this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We're in Matthew, chapter 1. You're going to want to have a finger in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, chapter 7. And if you have an extra finger, you're going to stick it inside of Genesis, chapter 3. These are the passages we're going to be dealing with this morning. But as we open our Bibles, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, I am struck over and over again about my need and our need for you. God, the things that we can do under our own power are so small and so limited. And so we rely so completely on you. Your glory, your majesty, your power. Your Son, Jesus Christ, coming as Emmanuel to be God with us. The presence of the Holy Spirit filling and empowering your people. Lord, we rely on you again today. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would do in the hearts and minds of your children today what you want done, what you need done, what only you can do. We're grateful for this time. We give it to you in all of your sovereign glory and grace. In your magnificent name we pray. Amen. Amen. So guys, we are, through this month, we are taking a look at the season of Advent through the lens of what on earth is God doing? What is God fixing? What was broken that God has to redeem? And so we've been using this line from the Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, the weary world Rejoices. I love that line in that hymn. There is a thrill of hope and a weary world rejoices. A world that is broken and weary and worn down with our sin rejoices at the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ is good news. It is the only really good news that we need as broken creatures. It is a reason for angels to rejoice, for humans to rejoice. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to begin to list out the things that are wrong in the world around us. From the things that happen to us or because of us that are wrong and that are broken and that we feel inside of our daily lives to those things that make their way into the international scale and they create this unfixable constant turmoil that is inside of our world. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to start to list all of those things that are wrong. But I believe it takes the right kind of vision, it takes the right kind of sight to see what God is fixing in the birth of Jesus Christ, to trust in God's solution to all of those things in that manger on the very first Christmas morning. What we think it means to fix everything and make everything right is oftentimes captured by the vision of the immediate around us. Now, these things that happen to us, that, that, that lay on us, that are insufferable burdens inside of our lives, they're very real. And our vision of what it means to fix that is often caught up with those kinds of things. But when God comes as a child in Jesus Christ... God's vision and explanation for what it means for him to fix what is wrong is not just this, it is all of this. 
if we have the sight to see what God is doing in the birth of Jesus Christ. We think it's one set of things, and then God shows up as an infant. God doesn't show up as a king. He doesn't show up as a general. He doesn't show up as a celebrity. He doesn't show up as a celebrity pastor, right? Because we know that they can fix everything. He shows up as an infant. So maybe sometimes our vision of what needs to be fixed is different than God's solution to what's really going wrong. There's this beautiful passage in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He borrows this image from the Scottish theologian George MacDonald, and he uses the image of a house. He said, imagine inviting God into that house, like, it, like inviting God into our lives. Now, we tend to think that the household of our lives is pretty much well put together, and that when we invite God into our situation, He's going to, you know, fix some of the paint on a couple of walls. He's going to fix a little bit of the plumbing that needs to be fixed, and then everything's going to be fine. What we discover when God shows up is He begins to knock down walls, He blows off the roof, He digs at the foundation, and He starts all over again. Jesus didn't come to make us better people. He came to make us new people. What Jesus is doing in His birth is completely new. Now, the promise of the birth of Jesus Christ is given to us in several different places and several different ways inside of the Old Testament. And Matthew, in his story, in Matthew chapter 1, mentions one of those promises specifically. He said that the birth of Jesus Christ will fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he would be Emmanuel, or God with us. If the promise is that the birth of the Messiah will be God with us, why is that a big deal? Why do we need that? Why would we want that? Was there some kind of separation that needed to be put back together again? What exactly is it that God is taking care of with the promise, God with us? So here's some of what we're going to talk about this morning through Scripture. First of all, God's presence with us was broken. And it was broken because of our sin. His full, personal, intimate relationship with humanity was severed because of rebellion in the garden. And it continues to be broken and hindered because of our sin. But then, of course, God returns in Jesus Christ, this promise of Emmanuel. God, now watch this as we deal with this this morning. God the Father promises the presence of God the Son. And then God the Son promises the presence of God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus comes on that first Christmas day, and then Jesus produces for us, gives us the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see this as well, because even that is not the end of the promise. Jesus is coming back again. And he's coming back again to bring his children back into that full complete relationship with God. What happens in Emmanuel, guys, is right at the very focal point, the pivot point of God's redemption story and the promise of his return to be with us. It's beautiful. So let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 is the story of how Joseph is processing what's happening to Mary. And as he's trying to figure out exactly how to deal with this, 
he actually receives this visitation from the angels. So in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, it goes like this. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds the clarification, which means God with us. So Matthew tells us part of the story, and then he says, Now all of this took place to fulfill this promise that God gave Isaiah. This promise that God gave a little over 700 years before this day that we read in Matthew chapter 1. All of this. This is an elaborate promise. This is an elaborate scheme. All the things that God has put together fulfill this one individual promise like this. We've got a virgin in Mary. We have this divine conception. We have all of these angelic visits. I encourage you, through the Advent and Christmas season, read the Christmas stories in the New Testament, and you're going to read about these angelic visits over and over and over. It's just beautiful stuff. We have a righteous husband in Joseph. We have a God-loving wife in Mary. We have these wise men, these enigmas who come from the east and they follow a star. We've got shepherds on the hillside. We've got this angelic chorus. We've got a Roman census. We've got Herod who causes trouble. And on and on and on and on. And Matthew says, God has done all of this to fulfill this promise that the Messiah would be born. And he wouldn't be a normal child. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that word Emmanuel is actually only used three times in Scripture. Twice in the Old Testament Hebrew, and then only once in the New Testament Greek. And all three of these times, obviously, pull together this single promise of God with us in the birth of Jesus Christ. And the word, as Matthew tells us, just literally means God with us. Now that kind of promise, the kinds of things that Joseph and Mary heard from the angels that we read would have struck all the right chords with both of them. Because both of them are righteous individuals. The way they're described to us in Scripture, they're God-fearing people. They're law-abiding people because the two of them want to honor God with their lives and all that they are. Now, because they are those kinds of people, the things that they hear from the angels mesh with everything that they have learned in God's Word and the kinds of things that they have been anticipating for generations that God would show back up again and take care of His people. So this strikes all of the right chords for Mary and Joseph. And we get some of Joseph's reaction to that. He does exactly what the angel tells him to do. He marries this young girl, Mary, and he names the child Jesus and raises him through at least the first 12 years of his life. So we get a little bit of Joseph's faithful response. We get even more of Mary's faithful response. And in Luke chapter 1, part of what Mary does is she sings this song. It's a psalm of praise to God. Sometimes we call it the Magnificat. 
as she reflects on what has happened to her, what's coming out of her. It comes out of Old Testament Scripture and God's promises. And here's part of what Mary sings right near the end of that song. In Luke chapter 1, verses 54 and 55, she says this, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She knows that what's happening here has been promised for a very long time. God's been talking about this for a long time. And I love this little phrase squeezed in the middle of that little verse. He does this to remember his mercy. It is the mercy of God that Jesus Christ would show up and be born in a manger as an infant in human flesh. God is remembering his word. This is an example of God's power. This is an example of God's sovereignty. But Mary sees it for what else it is. It is an example of the mercy of God upon his people. So Mary begins to sing. She sings throughout that song about how God is going to bring mighty low and how he will raise the humble up. And living underneath Roman rule makes this real for Mary. They're not allowed to be everything they were intended to be as God's people because of Roman rule. So they feel that kind of oppression, political and military and economic oppression. And so Mary begins to sing, he's going to bring the mighty low and he's going to raise the humble up. You see, in the birth of Jesus Christ, God is turning upside down the normal order of human sin. In the normal order of human sin, these kinds of things seem to rule, today, rule the day. But when Christ is born, he's starting to turn all of that upside down. God is doing something. And he's doing something completely new in the birth of Jesus Christ. They already know, Mary and Joseph, they already know that the birth of this child is going to be different. So when the angel comes to Joseph, the angel says, you're going to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their Roman oppressors. It's not what he says. It's not what the angel says. The angel doesn't say he's going to free his people from the daily niggling problems that are caused by sin. He's going to save his people from the economic oppression of a system of economics that doesn't take care of the poor guy. That's not what the angel says. What's the solution? He will save his people from their sin. God is at work doing something else. But even this context that Mary is in, Mary and Joseph are in the context of Roman oppression and so forth, this uncertainty, this tyranny, this oppression, it is ripe for God to promise his Savior. In those kinds of cases, in these kinds of cases, his people feel their need of God even more acutely. They feel the reality, they know the reality that I need something done that I just, we just do not have the power to accomplish. So God's going to have to show up and he's going to have to fix this and he's going to do it by saving us from our sins. So it's in that context that this makes a lot of sense to Mary and Joseph. And so it was, in fact, with the original prophecy. The first time God speaks this through the prophet Isaiah so I want to go back, if you have your Bibles, to Isaiah chapter 7. I want to read a little bit of, of what God actually says, how this, um, how this comes to be. What's the context? What is God doing? 
So in Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, it goes like this. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ahaz who was king of Judah at the time. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose king you dread will be deserted. So the Lord comes through the prophet Isaiah and he begins to speak to King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz is in a tight spot. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 7, you read some of the context and so forth. King Ahaz, king of Judah, is king of a relatively small nation in the area. But right next door, he has this aggressor nation. It's the nation of Syria. And their kings and generals, Rezin and Pekah, are their names. They've coalesced against Judah. And Ahaz is afraid. At the very beginning of chapter 7, Isaiah shows up and he says, Ahaz, you and all of Israel are so afraid, you're like trees shaking in the wind. So Ahaz has a real problem in front of him. And so God sends Isaiah. And and God does an interesting thing with Isaiah. Isaiah brings one of his sons with him. It's like this object lesson. Because what God is going to do is he's going to promise a son. And so Ahaz has this kind of visual representation of the promise that God is going to give. So then Isaiah famously asks Ahaz for a sign. Now... By and large, we, we step back from that, and we should, because we're not supposed to spend time testing God and telling him what to do for us in this kind of context. But this is different, because God has shown up, and he says, Ahaz, I need you to ask me for a sign, and I want you to think big. As low as Sheol, as high, of the, as, high as the heavens, we want to make sure that my promise will be sealed by something that you might consider impossible. So Ahaz, give me anything. And Ahaz goes, I can't do that. Now, don't imagine that Ahaz is being overly spiritual at this point. He's not going, oh, dear Lord, I can't do that, you know, in some sort of super spirituality. That's not King Ahaz. But he doesn't do it. And so then God says, okay, then, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Because Ahaz refuses, God gives the sign. The Lord will do it. Not only will he do it, he is the only one who can do this. I love this kind of language inside of the Old Testament prophets. There are these moments like this where this kind of phrase shows up where the prophet says, the Lord himself will accomplish it. The Lord himself will do it because only God can do what we need done. And so here it comes, something that Ahaz did not expect, that no one saw coming. He says, a virgin will conceive. That in and of itself is clearly a divine miracle. But it's not just that that will happen. What is the significance of that? Well, the significance is is that the child to be born is the sign of the beginning of the end to your enemies. 
It's not just that it will happen and it's amazing and then something else is going to happen. But the child who is born is going to be the fulfillment of what God wants to do. Now, when Isaiah and his son are standing there in front of Ahaz, Ahaz has Syria on the brain. He's got this problem. He goes, I need this one thing fixed. And when God shows up, he says, I'm going to actually be dealing with this particular problem here. So when God gives this sign and he talks about the fulfillment of this, Ahaz actually doesn't know what to do with it. Now they are in Ahaz's lifetime protected from the Syrians, but they're protected from Ahaz's physical enemy because Ahaz does not trust God. What Ahaz does is he takes all of the treasure out of the temple of the Lord and he gives it to another king, a third party, and says, I will give you all of this money and more in the future if you will destroy the Syrians. And sure enough, that's what they do. And then that nation, the Assyrians, what do they do next? Then they destroy all of the nation of Israel as well. Ahaz sees this and he doesn't trust God and it leads to the destruction of his nation. When God is at work doing something so much more. Now, when Isaiah gives the prophecy, he says, you're going to call him, you're going to give this child the name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel is not a proper name. It's a title. It's a role that someone will fill. That role will be God with you. So we don't actually have a name yet. And so what we have now is this certain kind of tension under the surface in the history of God's people for a little over 700 years where we know that this child will, will be born, this child will fill the role of Emmanuel, God, with us, but we don't know the child's name until the angel shows up to Joseph and says, what is in Mary is done by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call his name. Jesus. Now we know. Now we know his name. Now we know that this is God with us. Now we know that what he will accomplish is the beginning of the end of the enemies of God's people. So God promises through Isaiah, and he brings to fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ this unique moment when God will be with his people again. And he'll be with his people in this walking around and eating dinner together and talking together kind of way. They literally walk and talk and live with Jesus Christ. Now part of what's so amazing about that is that God is completing a circle that was broken. Because God once did that with his people a very long time ago. Let's flip all the way back now. To Genesis chapter 3. We read some of this last week. I'm going to read another piece of it this morning. In Genesis chapter 3, <clears throat> I want to read verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 3 tells that story again of what we call the fall, the break in relationship between humanity and God, that moment of rebellion and the consequences of that rebellion. So in verse 22, it goes like this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So earlier in chapter 3, it says that God came down and began to walk in the garden looking for Adam and Eve. The sense that we get is that God has done this over and over again. But Eve and Adam have both taken from the tree. They have listened to the voice of the enemy. And they've eaten of this fruit and they've rebelled and their eyes were open. And suddenly they realize that they're naked and they're ashamed in each other's presence. They're ashamed in the presence of God. They begin to fashion for themselves clothing. And for the very first time in their lives, they hide from the presence of God. And God teases out everything that's happened. Then he has this conversation, right, with the serpent and then with Eve and with Adam. And he begins to go through the list of consequences. And he tells the serpent, there will always be enmity, animosity between your seed and the seed of the woman. But that seed, will you're going to bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. There's going to be consequences for this. He speaks to Eve and he lays out these consequences. He says, from here on out, as you give birth, it's going to be in blood, sweat, and tears. God had given them this command to fill the earth with more human human beings, but now all of that's going to happen in pain and toil. And he tells Eve, and your desires are going to be against the desires of your husband, and he will rule over you. What was intended to be this mutuality now is broken because of their sin. What is God fixing, right? Then he tells Adam, he says, all the food that you're going to eat for the rest of your lives to sustain yourselves, now it's going to be work. It's going to be toil. Because of you, the ground is broken now. And there's going to come a day, Adam, when you're going to die. You're going to return to the dust from which you came. But that's not the end of the consequences, as a matter of fact. God then has this counsel amongst himself, Elohim, the triune God, it has this counsel and said, well, now we've got this problem. Adam and Eve have known nothing but the good of God. In fact, that's all they knew was the good of God. But in rebellion and taking from that tree, now they know good and evil. And God says, we can't have them taking from the tree of life. So we have to expel them from the garden. So God sends them out. He closes the gate and he places this angelic being there. 360 degrees is the story, right? So that Adam and Eve are separated from the garden and from the presence of God. Now this is stunning. God built that garden and had a relationship with Adam and Eve it was perfect and complete and good. God gave them literally every good thing. And now he's protecting the garden from them. Now he's protecting the garden from us. Not only are they sent out from the garden, but they are separated from the God who had given them all of these things. They're separated from the presence of God himself. And now the kind of death that enters into the human condition is now twofold. We now have this spiritual death, and we now have this physical death. The spiritual death that enters in, that Adam and Eve experience, and that all of us now live in, as a matter of fact, until we're regenerated by Christ. Their spiritual death, they are separated from the presence and the grace of God that they had known in a powerful way. 
Their relationship with him will now require work. It will require repentance of their sins. It will require the endurance of faith through the trials of a sin-broken world. It will require faith in a God that they no longer see with their own two eyes. God was with them, and now they will have to seek after him with all of their hearts to find him. And this relationship to be fixed in the end will require, of course, a sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? And the physical death now that they experience, this is new to the human condition. Now Adam and Eve and their children and all of their children, it becomes the universal human haunting that we are separated from each other in this life through physical death. Guys, God was once with us in a way that we can't quite comprehend. What was it for Adam and Eve to actually walk with God in the garden? God created us to naturally, instinctively want to be with Him. To be only fulfilled and completed in relationship with Him. To walk in His ways of life. And to find his way, his way of life everlasting. This is literally how we were created. But our sin broke that. Our sin continues to break that. So God says that he himself is going to fix it. Remember, we talked about this a little bit last time. We know it needs to be fixed. We've also learned that all of our attempts to fix it fail every single time. So we need someone from the outside to come in and to take care of this. So God promises this shocking miracle. A virgin will conceive, give birth to the son. His name will be Jesus, and he will be God with us. So it is God who restores to us what we lost. It is God who makes life possible with him again through Jesus Christ. So do we know, like Mary did know, like Joseph did know, what is happening at the birth of Jesus Christ? Do we realize our need for a Savior? Do we just have our understanding of these things that need to be dealt with? Or do we have a greater understanding of this larger thing that God is at work fixing in the birth of Jesus Christ? I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in another part of his book, Mere Christianity. He talks about the coming of Christ. He puts it like this. Enemy-occupied territory... That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. And is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. The promise of God with us. Ahaz, ask me anything. Because this child is going to be what fixes what is wrong with the human condition. It's the promise of Emmanuel. But even this, the birth of Jesus Christ, is not the end of the promise. It's not the end of the story. So Jesus lives among his people. Jesus dies on the cross. He rises again from the grave on the third day. And then he does something else that we don't talk about often enough. He ascends back into heaven. And what a moment that is. His disciples are standing there with him on the Mount of Olives. And he just goes. And I love how the text puts it. While they're standing there, staring up into the sky, two more angels show up. They say, don't worry. 
as you saw him leave, you will see him come again. The promise of God with us. And God is still with us. Remember, God the Father, separated from his children by their sin, he promises the presence of God himself in the Son. God the Father promises God the Son. God the Son promises the presence of God the Holy Spirit. You see, guys, because of Jesus Christ, God is still with us. Here's how Jesus puts it to his disciples in John chapter 14. He says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The promise of God with us is still alive and active in empowering the people of God still today. You and I, gods, actually have access to the presence of the power of God through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. God's promised Spirit, whom Jesus says will be with us when things are good. <laughs> he will be with us forever. There is now, if you are a child of God, there is now no separation between you and the presence of God. So in this life, there is still now access to a walking and talking relationship with God himself. A life of learning his ways. A life of learning how to live out the character of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit instead of living out of our sin. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of the consequences of sin. I know what that does. I see what that does. You see what that does. There is now access to the Holy Spirit, learning to live out of His life in His ways. The fruits of the Spirit are the results of the DNA of the tree. When God changes the DNA inside of us, there's different fruit that comes out of us there is still access to a walking and talking relationship with God himself. But even with this promise fulfilled, the presence of the Holy Spirit with his people, there is still more to come, guys, because God intends to be with his people in a very real way for all of eternity. God is coming back. And this time to complete this promise once and for all. We were in the middle of John chapter 14 a second ago. Let's go to the very beginning of John chapter 14 and hear what Jesus tells his disciples. John 14 verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God with us. This is the promise. 
This is the fulcrum of history when Christ is born. These are all of the things given to us that will be completed on the day of the Lord. Isn't that astounding? Our sin had and continues to have radical consequences. It turned upside down the world that God created and intended and the relationships he created us for. And God in his wisdom and justice actually threw us out of the garden. And then in his love and mercy, he promised a day when he himself would be with his people once again. Then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, in the ultimate act of divine mercy and humility, takes on human form, and he is born on that first Christmas day. And from that moment on, God has been with his people again in one form or another. But then we still look forward to the day when we will see God in all of his mercy, in all of his grace, and in all of his righteous glory. And we will see him face to face. I want to finish reading this verse of Scripture from Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. His name will be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. He's fixing something that we are still figuring out, and he will be God with us. Let's pray.